everyone. This is Amanda Borshel Dan, and welcome to Times Will Tell, the weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. This week, we're speaking with Dr. David Sasso, a musician and child psychiatrist. David works in the intersection of mental health, music, and the arts, and serves as assistant clinical professor at the Yale School of Medicine. Full disclosure, David and I attended high school together in Indianapolis, after which he studied music composition at the Indiana University School of Music and double majored in biochemistry before attending medical school at Northwestern. He has premiered works with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra at the tender age of 16 and a full-length opera featuring children as the main characters and performers. More recently, David has focused on various traditional folk genres and his duo project called Kate Wallace and David Sasso is releasing its second album, this October, we'll discuss the idea of the creative genius and hear excerpts of his music, especially two very different pieces he wrote about Noah's Ark. Enjoy! David, thank you so much for joining me. Where am I finding you today? I am in my home office in New Haven, Connecticut. It's about an hour and a half uh, east of New York City. Fantastic. Now, can you please tell me about your mother? My mother um, is uh, the second uh, woman rabbi uh, to be ordained in the United States. Turns out the third rabbi, woman rabbi um, to be ordained ever. Uh, many years later, it was discovered a, a, a person named Regina Jonas was the first uh, female rabbi um, ordained uh, in a private smicha in, in, in Germany uh, before World War II. Um, but in the United States, uh, she um, entered rabbinical school at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College before uh, anybody knew a, a, a woman rabbi could exist. Uh, and, and so uh, she um, then met my father, who was also uh, in school there, and they became the first uh, rabbinical couple, um, as far as we know, in Jewish history. So that was meant to be a very bad Freud uh, impersonation by saying, tell me about your mother. But of course, we know each other because we went to high school together. So I want to make sure that everyone knows that at the outset. This is true. So today... What is your profession right now? I um, am a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Uh, I work with people of all ages um, in a variety of settings, uh, doing, of course, what most people think of psychiatrists doing, medication evaluations and, and medication management, but I also do quite a lot of psychotherapy in my practice with, with people of all ages. Okay, fantastic. And at the same time, we know each other actually from being in choir together. And also there was one night in which you tried to tell me uh, to teach me chemistry, which did not work out so well. I have to say I did not do well on that test. But in any case, you're also extremely <laughs> musical. So tell us about your first commission for a major symphony orchestra and at what age that was. Oh, straight to the to the symphony orchestra. Yes. Um, well, I, I, I studied music as far back as age three. My parents saw something, I don't know what, and they put me in violin lessons. I, I promptly quit the violin at age seven and went on to other 
uh, instruments and became interested in, in music composition once I got to high school. Um, and uh, a summer at Interlochen Arts uh, Camp, which is in Michigan, um, connected me with a composer who was associated with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra, where we grew up in Indianapolis. And where and my father played as a clarinetist, actually. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and and, and um, at some point in this summer, after my uh, 10th grade year, this composer said, would you like to write a piece for the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra? And I, you know, was a little bowled over, but I said, sure. And uh, and that led to the, the first um, of my um, orchestral pieces that was uh, performed. So as my father always said, if you can do music, but you can do anything else, choose the anything else for your profession. And that's exactly what you did, essentially. Well, you went to music school where I also enrolled for a while, the Indiana University School of Music. You graduated from it, but you also at the same time studied what? What was your double major? I also studied biochemistry. Uh, I think your, your your dad's advice is very good. The way I phrase it is that I decided at some point that it would be easier to be a doctor and a musician on the side than the other way around. A hundred percent true. And so then you went to medical school. Uh, where did you go to medical school? Uh, I was in uh, Chicago at Northwestern University. Okay. And so since then, you've been practicing uh, psychiatry, as we mentioned earlier. And one of the things that I want to talk to you about is this overlap between creativity and mental illness. So there's a, a huge stereotype that artists need to be mad, that they need to have this creative genius. Do you think that is accurate in any way? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's it's usually the first thing that comes up when I'm, I'm talking with someone about this overlap between uh, psychiatry and and uh, music or creativity generally or, or genius even more broadly. Uh, it's been called this the mad genius hypothesis, right? This idea that in order to be uh, at a genius level of creativity, you must have some kind of serious mental illness. And this is this is um, we see this in biographies of very famous musicians or artists who happen to have had either bipolar disorder or other mental illness. And so these, they, you know, we can call them psychobiographies, uh, support this idea and make it seem that it's inevitable that these two things are intertwined. It's really quite hotly contested in the literature when people are looking at this. Part of the problem is, is as you could imagine, it's virtually impossible to design a study that can actually tease out what is the cause and what is the effect and remove all of the confounding variables and make sure that we are not taken in um, by uh, the um, a spectacular story of a specific artist and then generalize that to all. Um, a, a mentor of mine um, phrased uh, it in regard, with regard to music um, as music and madness are hardly universal bedfellows. Um, and so, and a slightly different point of view um, looks at it in a, in a different way where the view um, that perhaps art is related to mental illness or art is neurotic isn't so much necessarily wrong as it is, at least for me, irrelevant. Because when I'm working with a patient, 
uh, if they happen to be an artist, I'm working with the difficulty that they bring. And if that difficulty involves an impairment in their creativity or their productivity, then we work on that. And if it doesn't, then we may leave it aside for the moment. It, there, there isn't that much data that suggests that, um, and this is from the other angle, that mental health treatment impairs creativity. Uh, and actually a lot to suggest that treatment can unlock creativity or productivity. This is a big fear that I sometimes hear. If I come in for therapy, it's going to spoil my, my creativity. If we think about um, one example of uh, Rachmaninoff, the composer and pianist, there was a period in his 20s where he produced virtually nothing. And this was a period of severe depression. Um, and uh, out through a, an intensive period of psychotherapy, he emerged from that and then composed most of the pieces that, that we know him by. Um, so my, my reading of the literature and, and also my experience clinically tells me that just as there are those who, um, whose experiences with mental illness or perhaps trauma inspire their creative work, there are far more instances in which mental illness can inhibit creativity. Um, so instead of the view that mental illness is some kind of require, requirement for creativity um, and other alternatives to view those who have mental illness uh, or trauma, who have the fortune to have a native creativity or a high level of training in their artistic discipline, that in those cases, the art for them can actually be sort of a saving grace. So they can work out their uh, anxiety or their aggressions or whatever through their art versus it being an inhibitor for for whatever exactly. is what you're saying. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's so interesting because, I mean, if you just look at the hair on some of these classical composers, you know all of them were kind of mad, right? The hair? <laughs> the hair. <laughs> no, but seriously, that is such a prevalent stereotype and you see it from Amadeus, you know, the popular yes. movie about uh, Mozart to, to all sorts of things about rock musicians as well. And I remember when I was in music school, there were several people with um, some pretty serious issues, mental issues, who would not take their medication because they did not want to block their creativity. I imagine you get that quite a lot. Yeah. And, you know, is it out of the question that that could occur in an individual? Um, no. I mean, that can happen. And if there is a medication or a treatment that seems to be taking things in a direction that is inhibiting something, and you collaboratively balance the risks and benefits of, of what you are doing based on the creativity and the productivity that one wants and the symptoms that are impairing a person in another aspect of their lives, um, then, you know, you switch things up, you try a different approach. There have been a few studies that actually try to look sort of empirically at what medication does to various aspects of creativity. And there are very simple ones. For example, um, you know, any, any performer who is listening may, may have, had, have, have, had, have tried themselves or heard of people using beta blockers, things like propranolol, um, for uh, auditions or performances. And while that that helps reduce some of the physical symptoms of anxiety prior to a performance, there are some things that it may actually inhibit. So if you are, um, let's say, uh, a dancer and you require a lot of cardiovascular sort of energy, you know, utilization for your art form, that may uh, impair that to some degree. Another example is the tremolo um, uh, that a, a violinist or, or, or another musician might use comes from what we call a physiological tremor, and it's an exaggeration of a, a physiological ability to sort of force yourself into a tremor. And because beta blockers treat 
tremor in people who have that as a, as a, as a, as a challenge, as a difficulty, um, it can impair that to some degree. So it's always, for me, uh, a, a, an individualized approach that is the most important. One of the things that I read about when you sent me some material about what you're doing today is that you have these collaborative opera scenes with children. And opera is such a ridiculous art form, you know, if you compare it to today. And so I just can imagine that you can put yourself in a completely different character and, and let everything out if you're willing to actually collaborate and participate. So... Are there cases in which you can't actually get the children to participate in this in this workshop, or are are they pretty willing? Uh, it depends on the situation. Um, you know, we have worked with uh, such a variety of of children, adolescents, and sometimes adults in various uh, mental health settings. I can describe it a little bit. The project that um, I created along with a fellow composer here in New Haven named Debbie Tison, um, we called it the Riverview Opera Project. It's named after Riverview Hospital, which was the former name of Connecticut's State Psychiatric Hospital for Children. So the people living, uh, I say living, the people who are hospitalized there, they actually end up living there for often a number of months. They're facing the toughest of challenges they have. You know, severe biological mental illness, um, broken kind of family systems, community systems, um, deep scars from traumas and so forth. Um, and, and since they spend many months uh, often at this facility, um, we decided that this would be a good place to try this, at the very least because it provides something of a normative experience of like a school musical, right? Which in that setting, one you know, you could imagine is not, uh, you can't sign up for this, the, the hospital musical. So that was one of our ideas. And it was difficult um, to engage the, the, the children there, given some of their challenges. But I would say that we were, by and large, very successful. It's funny to me that you call opera a normative <laughs> experience. <laughs> well, it, in the end, it, it sounded a little less like uh, Mozart or Puccini and a little bit more like Rent or Wicked, I would say. Okay. But we, we still, we call it opera, I think, for a reason, and you picked it up, which is that it carries this sense of grandeur. It's, it's with characters and the scenarios are larger than life, but they're rooted in life. And so I think that gave these kids an opportunity to tackle topics that they would not be able to express in their day-to-day -day settings. Or even if we just said to them, let's write a song about what you're struggling with, if it were just a song. Something about elevating it to this sort of, you know, the, this most complex and, and, and grandest of art forms, um, which, you know, virtually none of them have had experience with before was a good thing because it had allowed it to be a little bit distant enough that they could put into it what they were really struggling with. Something other, completely other, and then they could just go crazy in, in yeah. the genre. That's, that's yeah. fantastic. Talk a little bit about how your musical training and your training as a, a practitioner have overlapped and influenced each other. Yeah. Well, part of it is through these experiences. I mean, I, I think of these two parts of my life as... Uh, Occasionally, it's a double life where they don't interact at all. Uh, sometimes I am in a period of uh, of time where I am my music is a separate endeavor, um, at least in its day to day practice uh, from my uh, psychotherapy and psychiatry work. And there are other times where it overlaps, like with these operas. Um, but 
one thing that I have noticed over time, and I'm not the first person to, to talk about this or write about it, but the way in which training and experience as a musician for me and as an artist, I think in general, um, has really informed my approach to practicing psychiatry and vice versa. Uh, and I think you'll find um, if, if you talk to uh, a number of physicians and psychiatrists, uh, maybe in particular, that many of them have had a background in some realm of the arts. Um, so I, I notice a few things that um, inform one another between these two realms for me. First, is um, the idea of communication and, and trust. So in the best music, it, um, if you're paying attention as an audience member, you notice the level of communication and trust that's going on among the ensemble members, perhaps between the conductor and the orchestra and vice versa, between an accompanist and a soloist. Even if it's a solo performance, there's a trust that's built with the audience. It's like a, a, a pact that trusts the audience is going to supply the attention and the performer is going to supply their expertise and musicality in that moment. And you feel safe in their expertise as a listener. And, and the same thing happens in psychotherapy, I think, in the best psychotherapy, where you feel safe in the expertise of the therapist, hopefully. Um, that makes sense. But also study after study shows that the key ingredient in psychotherapy is actually not the specific approach or form to therapy. It's not whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy or psychodynamic therapy or other therapies. You can make those decisions based on, on good rationales. But the most important factor is the collaborative, trusting alliance between the patient and the therapist. So that, that's, the, I think, the trust in which both great art and, and good healing can occur. Um, I also think about boundaries um, and improvisation. So in music, and this applies, of course, probably also to any art, the best composers and the best pieces of music are those that set up a set of expectations, a set of boundaries. It could be an expectation based on the genre, it's the type of piece, maybe this is a sonata or a fugue or a whatever, a, po a piece of popular music. And then uh, you play with the boundaries that have been set. Not so much that the piece becomes incoherent. Because if all you're trying to do is be new, then that can happen. But you play with them to demonstrate a comfort with the boundaries. Um, and that establishes a trust with the listener that, that things are not going to go too far, but just far enough to sort of surprise or delight. And, and that's what defines the great improvisers as well, right? That the boundaries are known. You trust that. They know the chord changes. You know the scales and the arpeggios. They're all down pat. But they're down so well that the, the boundaries can become less rigid. Um, because, of course, things that are rigid are the things that break, right? Not things that are more compliant. And so I think in psychotherapy, too, the boundaries, of course, are the most critical aspect. The frame of confidentiality, uh, of trust, of non-judgmental listening, these cannot break. Um, but within them, therapy, I find, is much like improvisation. It's sort of this back and forth between these very well-defined roles, perhaps, you know, with, in this metaphor, in a duo. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. And I think one thing that a lot of uh, listeners may not appreciate is that classical music itself was set up within these improvisational themes as well, which we've somewhat stepped away from, it, mm -hmm. for the most part, in terms of modern performances of classical music. But... These structures are within 
the very, very foundational uh, pieces of classical music as well. Hello, I'm Ari Lam, the host of Good Faith Effort, the podcast where we show how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society. Want to hear a major music exec talk about the book of Genesis in hip-hop? Leading venture capitalists on how the book of Isaiah informs their work? Or an Oscar-winning producer reflect on how religion can save the American soul? Well, then subscribe to Good Faith Effort on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and listen in to inspiring conversations you won't hear anywhere else. Now, when you were in music school, you studied composition, and it was mostly classical composition, correct? Yes. But now you sent me a link to your new <laughs> album that's coming out, and you have kind of a country twang when you're singing in this. It's <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. true. <laughs> How did you make this evolution? And don't say it's from being from Indiana, because I know you don't talk like that in <laughs> general. <laughs> <laughs> you you hear little accents now that you didn't know before. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. Um, I think that um, for a lot of musicians, um, interests shift over you know the course of life, and it's hard to say precisely what happened. I uh, when I was training, I cons- thought of myself as. Pr- simply a, a composer. I did not perform. I didn't want to perform. It made me nervous. I didn't want to be on stage. I would rather write the thing, make it perfect, give it to somebody else and let them have to deal with it on stage. Um, but as time went on, especially after a hiatus from music, I, th- uh, I think during because of training in psychiatry, building a career, uh, building a family, um, the... Um, when I came back to music, something about these traditional folk genres grabbed me. I had always been interested in the instrument of the mandolin, which is now my primary instrument. Um, uh, I loved Irish traditional music for some reason. It, it resonated with me. Uh, and I, and I, when I moved to New Haven, I found the local Irish traditional music jam session. And I started playing this music. And the mandolin, in, in, in the States at least, is most associated with bluegrass. So I found my way into bluegrass. And then there are a number of other genres that are adjacent to all of this uh, old-time music. I've even started to dip my toes into klezmer these days, ah. going, back, going back to the roots. <laughs> um, where the mandolin, you know, doesn't have a super-defined role right now, but it, but it fits beautifully. For sure. That's uh, interesting. When I stepped away from classical music myself, I found myself playing klezmer and all of a sudden I felt very free and very, you know, unbound from all sorts of, uh, you know, scales and strictures and all that kind of stuff. And, And did you feel that as well when you started playing more folky kind of music? Yeah, I think it was. It allowed me to um, find my way into becoming a performer, whereas before I was only a composer. Because of, and we were just talking about improvisation. Um, this, uh, the importance of improvisation. Um, not that it doesn't exist, you know, in classical music, um, but in in a in a in a much different way, um, where the it, it's sort of a living tradition. Um, in the sense that you show up to jam sessions, um, you play with people you've never met before, there's a shared kind of uh, repertoire that uh, you uh, developed, 
um, and can uh, immediately sit down with people, um, even who are slightly across genres, and somehow come up with something that is novel and, 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 and fruitful in that moment. Through communication, as you mentioned earlier. Yes. Writing our song took 30-some years So much laughter, so many beers When did it start to crumble and fall Tumbling down Jericho's wall now, a recent project that you completed is two songs that are based around the story of Noah, Noah's Ark, Noah, as we would say here. And yes. one of them exhibits your classical side and the other exhibits your more bluegrass folksy side. Let's start first by talking about the classical, more classical composition, which is called The Raven, I believe, and set to a poem that your mother wrote. And it's just stunning. I literally cried when I heard it. Just mm. so beautiful. So talk a little bit about this, please. Yeah, thank you. Um, so it's called The Flight of the Raven. Flight and it, Raven. Uh, yes, and, 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 and it is, um, both of these pieces, and the second we'll talk about is, is part of another project um, that is more in this sort of, um, you know, Americana folk realm. But both of these pieces um arose from a program that I participated in that was uh, run out of IUPUI, this is Indiana University, Purdue University in Indianapolis, um, a program through their Arts and Humanities Institute called Religion, Spirituality, and the Arts. And this was run by um, my, uh, my mother, the rabbi. Um, and because during COVID it was all done via Zoom, I was able to participate remotely from New Haven. And every year they choose a story um, from uh, from the Bible um, to um, to explore all of its aspects way beyond its literal meaning through all of the commentary and the midrash um, and uh, the participants are all artists of various disciplines and the the culmination is that each artist creates a piece of work uh, based on their their particular reading and what they've learned through this um, uh, approach so. Um, the the flight of the raven piece um, is um, takes a look at I think a more commonly overlooked character in the Noah story, which is the raven. We all talk about the dove, which is the hero, um, brings back the olive branch, everything is happy. Um, but the raven is sent off and never comes back, if if you remember. Um, so um, what I did with this poem um, was. From a musical perspective, uh, thinking of the raven and sort of what I imagine its voice would be like, I kept it sort of very low um, in the in the range of you know pitch. It's alto, two alto parts, and men's voices, um, and then the English horn, which is perhaps one of my favorite instruments to listen it's to. So beautiful! I was yeah. so happy you chose that. Really yeah. lovely. Yeah. Which is, you know, if you don't know, um, it's often confused with the French horn, and they're really not related at all. French horn being a brass instrument, the English horn being a reed instrument that sounds very much like the oboe, and is, but is much lower. And it has this voice-like plaintive quality. Yeah. So there are a number of, of, of things that I did in this piece, which are sort of technical musical things, which I think are fun. Um, the, the, the chord progression um, spells out the word 
F-A-C-E, which is face, which sort of implies the arc kind of traveling on the face of the earth. Um, the, the melody uh, is, uh, outlines the, the two notes E and D, which uh, in Hebrew uh, spells ed, which means witness. Um, so the idea that the, the raven is the first witness to this, you know, post-Diluvian world. Um, and, and then the English horn, and I've done this in a number of compositions. Again, I'm not the first person to do this, but the English horn uh, uses um, direct quotes and variations from traditional synagogue trope melodies, uh, initially for the Torah, which is how one might chant Noah. Um, and later in the piece, it sort of morphs into the trope for the Haftarah um, because the raven is cast in the poem um, and in Midrash as um, uh, inspiration to future prophets. Um, so I was able over COVID to uh, record this remotely with um, some wonderful singers, um, um, one of whom uh, coordinated uh, it, Moira Smiley, who I don't know if you remember from, from IU, but uh, she was there with us at Indiana University. So we put that together um, over the past year. Just beautiful, and we'll play an excerpt for sure. Now, the other song is very different, but of a similar theme. I played it for my kids and they were just like, what, 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 what build yourself an ark? What, what is he talking about? Is this Noah's ark? What? So the the actual words are very deep in, in the, in the song, but the tune of it just sounds like, doo, 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 you know, like you can be rollicking a, to a country song or a, a folksy yes. song. So what, how did that happen? Yes. Well, so when during this program that I mentioned, the Religion, Spirituality, and the Arts program, I intended to write a classical piece because I wanted to get back to that. And that's what I did with the choral piece. But one night I was sitting down with the guitar and the first line just sort of came out. Um, in, in many of the English translations of this, the, the, the wood is gopher wood. I don't know what the word is in Hebrew. but um, So the first lines, gather some gopher wood and build yourself an ark. And then it just sort of flowed from there. And I think um, to understand the lyrics, um, I, 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 there are a couple of things that I would say. Um, I think um, I, I've always had an approach to these biblical passages that, that come from a non-supernatural view of the Bible, um, along with a reverence for the wisdom that the, the stories provide. Um, so I think it's very important when looking at old stories and old wisdom that we honor the text while at the same time questioning it. In fact, you know, in Jewish tradition, the greatest honor you can give an idea is not just to engage with it seriously, but critically and creatively. So I think there's a temptation these days, especially I can speak to American culture at least, to accept or reject things wholesale. Um, there's less room for uh, nuance, for exploration, and that's where the space for creativity lies. Um, and so um, the difference between, between taking a text literally and seriously 
came, was really in my mind as I wrote this piece. Uh, if we don't take the story seriously with all of its blemishes, we lose the ability to find wisdom in all of its contradictions, in all of the difficult parts, in the parts that have been discarded. And, and the Noah story has a lot of difficult parts. What is Noah doing? Why does he not complain? Why doesn't he tell his neighbors? Why doesn't he build some other arcs to bring some other people? What happens after when he, you know, with his son Ham? I mean, there are so many things that are very complicated about uh, this story. Uh, and I think it leads people to just discard it. Um, but there's nothing new to approaching these stories creatively, even within Jewish tradition. This is the basis of Midrash. And we can continue to create Midrash. This is something that I learned from my parents, the rabbis, of course, and not just to see ancient stories as things etched in stone, but as living stories, um, as windows into the past with all of the blemishes and beauties, because for sure, future generations will look back at our stories and see all the blemishes as well. Um, so, so for me, as I wrote this song, and of course, this is probably informed my perspective as a psychiatrist, the flood is not a story necessarily about God, right? The question usually is, why did God send the flood? But it's, a, for me, a human story about how we deal with catastrophe. It's not about whether Noah, the man, was bad or good. It's a, a window into what do you do when you're faced with losing potentially everything you, you, you know, right? Um, and, um, you know, why didn't Noah say anything? Why didn't he complain? Why didn't he try to stop the flood? These questions miss the point for me. Um, Noah is silent, in my view, again, as a psychiatrist, because that allows us to project ourselves into the story. We can decide what we want, would have done, right? So, so for this song, to, to finally answer your question, I asked myself, what would I want to uh, save in a modern flood? What would be at danger of being lost if we don't actively try to preserve it? And um, it's pretty remarkable that this was the story that was chosen prior to COVID um, for this program um, because we were in our own arcs, right, over the past year. Um, so um, I read a piece of writing that, that talked about the ark metaphorically as an archive, uh, and in the biblical story, it's the animals who pres are preserved. Um, and, and I don't know, but, but for me, how could we extend this? I don't know if, if, if how many listeners um, will, will, will be familiar with this. I remember a game we used to play during the Pesach Seder where each person says, I was leaving Egypt, I'm leaving Egypt and I'm taking with me a blank. And then the next person has to say what they would take with them, and you have to remember what everybody said before you, and it becomes funny because you can't remember. Um, but that, that resonated with me as I was writing um, this piece. So in it, I make God the narrator, gather some gopher wood, build yourself an ark. Um, I make, uh, in a nod to overlooked biblical characters, just like the raven in the other piece, um, I make uh, the narrator not speaking to Noah, but to Noah's wife. Um, who later in Midrash gets the name Naamah. Um, but you're right, the, the song is simple. It's just three chords, it's like a country chord, um, but it answers these questions. What would we bring along with us if uh, there's calamity around us figuratively, right? To, and we need to stay inside. Uh, things like melodies and art and wisdom uh, and truth. And I, I think that... Um, this was really powerful to me to write as we all had to stay, as I said, in our arcs over the past year. It's just wonderful. And I'll play, as I said, an excerpt. Now, just to end, you have an album coming out. Tell us very briefly, what is this album and how can we find it? 
Yes. So this um, song, Build Yourself an Ark, is going to be the first single that actually releases on August 20th. Um, so it may have been released by the time <clears throat> you're listening to this, but you can find that for sure uh, on any streaming service, on Spotify and so forth. Um, our duo is called Cat Wallace and David Sasso. Uh, and I've collaborated, uh, been so happy to work with over the past several years, a uh, young fiddler um, who I met playing bluegrass here in New Haven. She's now about to start a master's program uh, in Boston at the New England Conservatory. But we came out with an album two years ago, and now this is our follow-up. Um, the rest of the songs have nothing to do with biblical themes, but the, I think they all reflect to some, in some way on kind of the pain of the past year. Uh, a lot of them are breakup songs in some fashion. They could be breakup songs about people or even breakup songs with uh, concepts, <laughs> if you want to think about it that way. But um, it is really in this vein of Americana um, with uh, mandolin and guitar and pedal steel and, 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 and other instruments in, in that realm. And so uh, if you are interested, you can uh, look us up at, at Cat Wallace and David Sasso. Our website is just wallaceandsasso.com. Yofi, thanks so much, David. Thank you, Amanda. Some gopher wood and build yourself an ark. Gather the animals two by two. Take along your loved ones, they may not all want to go. Don't worry about your husband, he already knows. You'll have to stay inside till it's safe to come out Can't really tell you how long that will be Prayers are good for hope, but they won't be enough Have faith in the truth, that's faith in me And the truth that's faith in me Thank you so much for listening to Times Will Tell and a special thanks to TLV1 Studios for sound production help. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Times Will Tell on all podcast platforms. (laughs) 